I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31 for this morning's Old Testament reading. It's a short passage, but a passage I think many of us will be familiar with as it is cited quite often in the New Testament, something that Christ himself, in fact, quotes on the night of the supper. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. That I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And now turning with me to our New Testament scripture reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our sermon text this morning, as we will consider uh, the first uh, three verses. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, let's back up one verse. We'll begin in chapter 2, verse 17 for uh, some context. It's Paul writing under inspiration of the Spirit. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as men commissioned by God, and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for the reading of the word, and so we ask that you would bless its reading, but not only the reading, the preaching as well, that through the ministry of the word, we would understand those things which your word clearly says. We ask that your spirit would work to open our eyes to direct our hearts and to correct us and instruct us in those ways that we have erred and to comfort us in those areas where we were hurting. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I ended up taking an English class, of course, and there was a girl who came in who sat just a couple seats in front of me, quite shaken up. Uh, one particular day in class, and when people were asking as we were waiting for the class to begin, what, uh, why is it 
that you are so startled. She recounted the events that had taken place the previous night. She was on her way home uh, from her boyfriend's house uh, and was uh, driving uh, down uh, a dark road when all of a sudden uh, these flashing lights came on behind her and she pulled over and it was an unmarked cop car. She rolls down her window and the cop asking to see her license and ID, then begins to ask her to get out of the car. However, something that she noticed was the cop didn't have a badge, there was this unmarked car, something just did not seem right, and so she asked uh, the police officer for some proper identification as well, saying she did not feel safe, asking if they could at the very least drive down to a lighted area before she got out of the car. And then this police officer began to get uh, quite belligerent, and she got scared, and she drove off and called 911. And so it actually turns out that this uh, man was, in fact, an imposter, a man pretending to be a cop, uh, and what had been, um, uh, over the past few weeks, in uh, the town in which I lived, had been uh, preying on uh, 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 single women, uh, pulling them over uh, and harming them, and fortunately she was able to escape. Uh, But... I think we all recognize from stories uh, like this the importance of uh, proper uh, credentials. They're important. They give a certain uh, a certificate of authenticity. So there's a symbol of authority back behind those proper credentials. They back your claim. You know, if, uh, if you ever watch, uh, enjoy watching old cop shows like I do, uh, and, you know, whenever a cop's in hot pursuit, what is it that he always yells as he pulls out his gun, right? Stop in what? Stop in the name of the law. He's not yelling at them to stop on the basis of his own authority. There is an authority that backs the actions of these particular officials. And so if you have a phony badge, you have a phony authority. Well, what we see this morning in this passage, in this very thorny situation that Paul has been thrust into with the church of Corinth, is that some members of the Corinthian church have called Paul's credentials into question. Some have begun to claim that Paul is, in fact, a phony. These celebrity preachers who have made their way and inserted themselves into this congregation have claimed that Paul is not a true apostle. He suffers. A true apostle couldn't suffer. Here's a man whose ministry is neither flashy nor remarkable. The age of the Spirit has come. Uh, So these false teachers say, so where's the victory, where's the power, where's the glory, where's the success and prestige? And as we have seen over the past two chapters, uh, Paul's ministry looks anything uh, uh, but that. A failed missionary opportunity in Troas, a fellow co-laborer, co-missionary missing in action, a church on the rocks. How could any of this look so powerful? You look at Paul and his detractors are saying, clearly this is a man with false credentials. So this morning, Paul begins to show his badge, to show his authority. Where Paul, in essence, says, here are my credentials. But in so doing, he brings into clearer focus the nature of new covenant ministry. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, we'll consider that of what we might call commendation or recommendation. You'll see that here in verse 1. Secondly, we'll consider that of the letter, verse 2. And finally, that of the ink in verse 3. So commendation, letter, and ink. 
I want you to think about the, uh, uh, the, the, the process that's required to, to credential a minister in our denomination, and uh, many denominations like ours, you know, our denomination is not the only group that does this. It's a practice that goes back at, at the very least to the English uh, Reformation. Now, one necessary item that is required for a, a candidate for ministry to get ordained is, in fact, a letter of recommendation. I think many of us understand those things even as we apply for jobs. There are uh, recommendation letters that are require personal and uh, uh, professional references. You're not just getting uh, your brother or best friend on the phone. You also have to provide uh, previous employment uh, and previous employers. People who would say, no, this man is in fact qualified. This is a man of integrity. This man is one that you actually want uh, in uh, your service. Letter recommendations uh, are quite important. They're not something to be discarded or treated lightly. But I want to consider uh, the questions that would be raised if I came before you this morning and I, uh, I said, you know, beloved congregation, um, do you want me to provide you with another letter of recommendation? What would that imply? If I came up here and I read, I said, guys, here, here's a letter of recommendation. My old pastor wrote to say that I actually am qualified for the job. I would raise certain questions because that, that time, that process has come. It would, uh, the, the implications would, would uh, be that you're thinking that, that, that something, is, something is not right. Or what if I came this morning and I asked you guys to write me a letter of recommendation? <laughs> I think that the red flags would be popping up all over. You think, what's wrong? Something's afoot. Is Charles on the way out the door? He, he, just, he hasn't even been here two months. Um, what is wrong? But this is actually the very thing we see happening with Paul. Something's not right. Whether I'm asking you for a recommendation letter or whether I'm up here rereading to you another recommendation letter, the point is something is wrong. Something is not right. Something is amiss. You see here in verse 1, Paul is asking these questions, do I need a letter to you? Do I need to give you another letter of recommendation? Or do I need a letter of recommendation from you? Think of Paul's experience, his, his own personal relationship with this church. Paul says, I planted this church. Do I, need to, do I need to give you a letter of recommendation for me? Do you really not know me? Or even worse, do I need to get one from you? Should I, should I be packing my bags and heading out the door? You know, in the ancient church, there was you know, no, no photo ID. We don't, there's no driver's license, no passports uh, in the sense that we have them today with photographs. And so when, uh, and you think about the, the spread of the early church, uh, for a church to receive one of the apostles or a deacon from another church, uh, there was often a letter of recommendation that, that was attached saying, you know, from one of the other churches, hey, this is somebody who's trustworthy. You see this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3, where Paul talks about signing off on some of these letters of recommendation for legitimate ministers, ministers as they come to visit you or as you send them back to Jerusalem. But one of the problems that we see facing the church in Corinth is that these false teachers, these people that Paul will later in the letter refer to as the super apostles as he mocks them, some translations will have it false apostles, but it's really, a, it's a, he's mocking them, these super apostles, uh, not true apostles. They've inserted themselves into this congregation. It's a, a band of celebrity preachers, if you will. Their MO is this. They begin writing each letter, each other letters of recommendation. 
so that they could try to insert themselves into the churches. It's kind of like the self-perpetuating degree factory, so to speak, to try to prove their, their hyper-inflated sense of self-worth. They're writing their own credentials for their own best buddies. You know, it's the, the equivalent of, of if a guy decided to start a seminary and then he gave himself an honorary doctorate. That's essentially what these guys are doing. These are men of credentials. But the question is, are their credentials valid? In chapter 5, Paul will refer to them as self-congratulatory men who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. In chapter 10, there are men who measure themselves by one another and they commend themselves to one another. They've got credentials, but those credentials are phony badges. These men are imposters. They're trying to play it off as if they are official, as if they are legit, but they are not Consider how deceptive this practice would be. Phony preachers contrasting themselves with Paul. Think of the impact that this would have on the congregation, a congregation that really judges things by appearances rather than by the heart. Think of what these super apostles would say as they contrasted themselves with Paul. They say, look what we've accomplished. Look at our rhetorical skills. Look at our ecstatic experiences. Paul, that's why Paul goes to great lengths to talk about his own ecstatic experiences later uh, in this letter. These are guys who are trying to measure themselves by success and prestige. Their rhetorical skills, these displays of power. And they say, now look at Paul. Here's a man who has a prison record. Here's a man who has a weak stage presence. He has a bankrupt ministry. All he seems to do is cause division and strife. Just look at what happened at Ephesus. He was driven out by a mob. Here's a man who's constantly on the run. Here's a man who abandoned a missionary opportunity in Troas. Now look what's happening here at Corinth. There's a church that's falling apart. And here's a man who works full-time making tents. How could he truly be called an apostle? When he has to work just as a day laborer. By outward appearance, these super apostles have it all. How could Paul ever measure up? So Paul says, okay, you want to see my letter of recommendation? Let me pull it out. Let me give you my letter of recommendation. I've got it right here, Corinth. And that letter is you. You see that here in verse 2. You are my letter. You're written on my heart. I carry it everywhere I go. People ask for my credentials, and I point to you guys. Why do you think that I abandoned the, the mission work in Troas? Paul's already said this in chapter 2. And to quote Willie Nelson, you were always on my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about you and how our relationship has fallen apart. I mean, to notice this, Paul's not the recipient of the letter. Paul is the letter bearer. He's the delivery boy. He says they are his credentials. They're his certification, his certificate of authenticity. They're his letter that's read by all. Everywhere he goes, he opens his mouth and boom, out gushes Corinth and how much they mean to him. Anytime he opens his mouth, the contents open wide. This isn't a trite sentimentality. Recall Acts chapter 18, Corinth is the starting place for the Gentile mission. Think of the great controversy that this covered in the book of Acts. 
where people ask, is a Gentile church even biblical? Is a Gentile church even possible? What would it even look like? See, in one sense, Paul's ministry hinges on Corinth's outcome. Corinth is the alpha test, so to speak, as to whether or not there is going to be a legitimate mission to the Gentiles, as Paul has been ordained and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So his very first work as an explicitly Gentile mission is the city of Corinth. So all eyes are turned in the church to that direction to see what will happen to this particular congregation. And so Paul, to the watching world, says the Corinthian church are my very credentials. They are the proof and the pudding of my validation and what I've been commissioned to do. They are my certificate of authenticity. Those, as Paul writes to, uh, to this church in his previous letter in 1 Corinthians 6, you who were once fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, swindlers, drunkards, the domestic uh, abusers, such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you. But you have been washed You have been sanctified. You have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and His precious blood and made clean by the Spirit of the living God. See, Paul's in fact saying, uh, you're calling my ministry into question? You need proof that I'm a legitimate minister of the gospel? Well, here is exhibit A. Look at yourselves. You weren't raised God-fearers. You were raised pagans. Nearly all of you were raised pagans. And look at what you once were. And look what you've become. If my ministry is not authentic, then how do you account for your changed lives? That's the question Paul is posing to the Corinthian church. Are you perfect? Paul is asking, of course not. We see the trouble and turmoil that pervades this church. They've got such a long way to go. But look how far they've come. I'm going to notice the, uh, the, the stroke of rhetorical genius that Paul is doing here. Follow the logic. Paul is asking this question. He's almost entrapping the, the congregation, so to speak. Is my ministry authentic? Think of it like a flow chart. Is my ministry authentic? No. Then how can you exist? There was no church prior to me coming here. There was no church in Corinth before I arrived. So let me ask again, is my ministry authentic? Yes? Then why are you calling my legitimacy into question? So he's directing them to reconsider and reevaluate these things that they already know. Corinth is stuck. Their conversion authenticates Paul's ministry. It shows that he's not a phony apostle. It validates his credentials. It shows that he is, in fact, the real McCoy. So he says, you're the letter, you're changed lives, evidence, my ministry, that the work of the Spirit is alive and well in the congregation of Corinth. It's the very thing their lives signify. You see that here in verse 3. It says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, but it's written not with ink. It's not a handwritten letter. Rather, it's written by the very Spirit of the living God. Not written on tablets of stone, but written on human hearts. 
right? If Corinth is the letter and Paul is the letter bearer, then Christ is the author, not Paul. In other words, Paul is not here to justify his own ministry. Paul's not writing his own recommendation letter. He's not doing what the the super apostles are doing. Paul's not saying, look what I've accomplished. No, he's saying, who's the author? The author of my letter of recommendation is Christ. You are the letter, but Christ is the author. And the Spirit is the ink, as it were. Can you think of one better qualified to write Paul's letter of recommendation than the Lord Jesus Christ? Who could really call his credentials into question now? Again, I'm going to follow the logic of the gossipers uh, that you see here in Corinth, the false apostles, claiming that Paul is, in fact, not a true apostle. Paul says, yes, I have. Yes, I am. I have my letter, my, my letter right here. They ask, well, who wrote it? Paul's logic here is saying, Christ wrote it. How can, how can you refute that? There is no one-up. There, no, there is no trump card to, to outplay. Uh, King Jesus wrote my letter of recommendation. Can you think of a better, more qualified person to write Paul a letter of recommendation than the one who is king of his church? You know, it's the equivalent of a, you know, a, a, a part-time employee at an army surplus store calling into question the credentials of a four-star general. Dude, I've got camo pants. Who do you think you are? Four-star general saying, well, I've got a letter from the president and the Senate. This is really a ridiculous conversation to be having. This is essentially what's happening with Paul. Paul is God's four-star general. And here we have men who are just wanting to play toy soldiers, pretending that they really are generals in the army of Christ. See, Paul is not commending himself here. He's saying, God has commended me to you. And the certificate of authenticity is your unchanged hearts. There's nothing, uh, n- nothing uh, here that you're able to fabricate. And now Paul drills the metaphor even deeper. Notice what he says here. Is the ink is not written on stone tablets, but it's written on human hearts. Well, why is it that he's mentioning stone tablets? Right? The Greeks and Romans didn't write letters on stone tablets. They wrote on papyri. This is early form of paper. So why would Paul ever be using the language of stone tablets? This is in the 8th century BC. People aren't writing in cuneiform anymore. See here Paul is giving vibrant Old Testament imagery, pointing his readers back to the reading of the law given, the giving of the law at Sinai. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord had delivered Israel from slavery, 400 years of servitude. He's given him his, uh, his people his law. And he inscribes the law on what? On stone tablets. We all know the story. The rest of the Old Testament tells that story over and over again. That God's law remained written on stone tablets. But it never made its way to the human heart. Over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord keeps saying over and over and over again, circumcise your hearts. Even in Proverbs, inscribe these words on your very heart. The rest of the Old Testament shows that under Moses, it just wasn't done. It couldn't be done. We're going to see in the coming weeks, as Paul 
teases out the difference between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ. One of the great benefits that we have under the new covenant. What makes it so much better? Here we see one of those benefits. Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the very end, the most important book in the Old Testament, the Lord promises after exhorting the people of Israel over and over again to circumcise your hearts, and they show that they can, and the Lord says, you won't be able to do it. You will fall into idolatry. I will send you into exile because of your own hard and stony hearts, but there is coming a day when I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with your whole being. The prophets foretell this very thing. Uh, Ezekiel says this, the days are coming when I'll remove their heart of stone and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. Behold, the days are coming, the prophet Jeremiah writes, when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with them at Sinai where the law was given only on stone tablets. Now a new covenant is coming where the law will now be inscribed not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of men. The Lord's saying, in effect, I wrote that law on stone and they broke it, so I will write the law on their hearts and I will be my God and they shall be my people. So what does that, this have to do with Paul. I want you to think about this. Something we'll consider even more deeply in the next two or th- over the next two and three weeks. God authenticated Moses' ministry by writing the law on stone tablets with his finger, so to speak. But now God has inscribed his law once more. This time not on stone tablets, but on human hearts. If God validated Moses' ministry at Sinai with the the giving of the law, now he validates Paul's ministry at Corinth with the giving of the Spirit, who enables the people of God to keep the law of God. God has certified Paul as an apostle of the new covenant. And what we'll see over the next few weeks is Paul's ministry is not only legitimate, it's actually, in fact, better than Moses, where Paul can actually look back on the Mosaic institution, and as good as it was for its time, he will refer to it in light of the gospel, in light of the new covenant, as a ministry of condemnation and death. Because what Paul offers is not simply an external law code, but the ministry of the Spirit, whose fruit abounds in heartfelt obedience. See, Paul's ministry supersedes these false apostles like an army general trumps those teenagers playing Call of Duty. Messed up as Corinth is, sinful as they are, note the great progress that has been made in the lives of that congregation. It's evidence of the Spirit's work in their hearts. That is Paul's letter of recommendation. It is the proof of the changed lives of the people of Corinth. You cannot fabricate it. You cannot falsify it. You cannot make it up. I want you to notice this. In verse 1, Corinth is regarded as Paul's letter. In verse 2, Corinth is regarded as Christ's letter. And now in verse 3, Corinth is regarded as the Spirit's letter. Christ is the author, the Spirit is the imprint, and Paul is the delivery boy. 
Paul's ministry is so Christ-centered, it is so Spirit-saturated. How can anyone call his ministry illegitimate? See, this is Paul not defending his own persona or his own personality. Paul is defending his very ministry because it is the ministry itself that has been called into question. And I think this raises uh, three significant points for us today as the people of God. The first is that of the question of a certified minister. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's, he's contrasting himself uh, from charlatans. Paul is saying, I'm the legitimate ministry, though by all outward appearances, that does not look like it's the case. I come to you with weakness and suffering. Paul himself admits that he's not the best public speaker. How can I compare with the people who have their own YouTube channel. What Paul is saying is that is not the criterion. It's not the criterion for New Covenant ministry. I think so many of us think of that. Oh, I listen to this pastor because he has so many thousands upon thousands of followers on Twitter. I listen to this minister because he's written so many books. I listen to this minister because the church is so big. That is not the proper criterion for evaluating a minister of the new covenant. You could tell a lot of a man's ministry by the man himself is what Paul is getting at. Does he boast in himself? Is he boasting in his own accomplishments? Or is he concerned with Christ's glory? Or is he concerned with naming a ministry after himself? See, anyone could get a seminary degree. I've been to seminary. I could guarantee you anybody can get that degree. But you cannot fabricate integrity. A minister's certification does not reside in the letters that stand behind his name, or the degrees on his wall, or the number of books on his bookshelf, or the books he has published, or the size of his church, or the size of his Twitter followers. Success is not the hallmark of a faithful ministry. As we saw in the first two chapters of this letter, an authentic ministry under the, new covenant, under the new covenant is in fact marked by suffering more than success. Man's ministry is certified in the fruit found in the lives of his congregation. It's not the mere accumulation of Bible data. It's not even found in the perfection of those members because none of us will be perfect this side of the Lord's return. But it is seen in a life characterized by a continued and steady growth in godliness. And a life of heartfelt obedience. You, Westminster Presbyterian Church, are the letter of recommendation of the session of OPC. There's a second uh, significant feature we have to consider, not just the question of certified ministers, but that of a, a certified congregation. See, the church is not simply a, uh, a social club, a, a collection of loose individuals with like-minded interests or a similar, uh, uh, located, situated in a similar tax bracket or having a, a similar ethnic homogeneity. Rather, the church is the assembly of the redeemed, where our focus is not found. The question of true spirituality is not found in ecstatic experiences, but in changed lives, in lives of holiness in righteousness, in love, in grace. 
See, the church is given as an institution not to affirm our own preconceived beliefs, but they are given to disciple and to shape us that we might all together be conformed to the image of our beloved Savior. To obey all that Christ has commanded from a heartfelt obedience that is only accomplished by the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word of God, which never errs, which never fails. Third significant feature, I think, we see from this passage is the matter of certified promises. And is that that the work of inward renewal and heartfelt obedience manifests that the Spirit really is at work among the people of God. To a church that is struggling to pay the rent, to a church that can't even find a building, to a church that doesn't even know if it's going to keep the lights on at the end of the week, that is not the litmus test for whether or not that congregation is successful or not. The church this side of glory will look like weakness and frailty. It's not the number of programs that determine the success of the church. It's whether or not lives are, in fact, being changed. Whether or not there is, in fact, a growth in godliness. A concern for growing in love for the Lord and love for one another. And if we as a church are not growing in godliness, if we are growing stagnant and lukewarm, then the most gracious thing the Lord could ever do would be to prune the church before it gets snuffed out. The gospel is proclaimed in frailty and weakness. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to see this. It is, it, is, it is a treasure found in jars of clay. Broken vessels. Not found in the strength that so many people want to judge successful ministries by. I think we need to take a step back and stand in awe of the reality that we have a gracious God who has condescended to stoop, to dwell with sinners. That we have something greater than Moses and Israel had at Sinai. Because God has now inscribed His law no longer on stone tablets, but on our very hearts by the work of the Spirit. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would take this word and You would convict us that you would cause us to see the proper, with proper lenses and tools needed to evaluate where we stand as a congregation. Our hearts growing in love for you and for one another. If they aren't, we ask that you would convict us of our sin and that you would cause us to grow. Grant us repentance and faith that we might train ourselves to godliness. Bless us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.